Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Brad Templeton. Brad founded Clarinet, the first internet-based content company, is chairman emeritus of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is one of the founding computing faculty of Singularity University, and thinks about autonomous vehicles, nanotechnology, privacy, and digital rights, among many other things. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Brad, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, good to see you guys. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today? Well, you just did that. And of course, uh, the, if you have a long resume, it mostly just means you're old. Uh, <laughs> but I've, uh, I, you know, obviously, there's been a technology theme to the things I've worked on in my life, uh, starting with working in software in the days of the microcomputer. Uh, as it used to be called. I don't think you hear people say that very often. Anymore. I'm not sure I've ever heard that term, actually. <laughs> never. Boy, you are young. But you, you've never heard the term the microcomputer. The I may have read it. I don't I don't I may have read it. And so I don't know that I've ever actually heard a person. Well, say everything, it everything we know today <laughs> began, well, with other things, but eventually with the microprocessor, which was invented by four guys at Intel, one of whom is a friend of mine. And uh, those got put into things they called microcomputers, which were eventually priced at a price where uh, people could buy them for themselves. The most famous ones, the Commodore PET, the TRS-80, and the Apple II in the late 1970s. And I was working on software for those, and that's how I got into doing this, and then uh, worked for what was the first PC uh, software company, for PC applications company, one that's no longer known today, but it, eventually it was named Visicorp. And that's because its most famous product was named Visicalc, the first spreadsheet. Have you heard that name at least? No, no, no. Oh, no you haven't. <laughs> I, I'm reasonably more certain that I've not heard that than I am that I have not heard the word. Oh, I def oh, definitely oh, know oh. about VisiCalc. <laughs> well, VisiCalc was the, it's the, it is the product which created the term killer app. You've probably heard that term. I've heard that term. Uh, and, uh, and it was the first spreadsheet and it was the first piece of software where people said, wait, I could actually do something useful with this personal computer and not just write programs and play games and the other things that people were doing. And so uh, I got a chance to work on that and, and help bring about the dawn of uh, the PC or personal computer or microcomputer industry. Uh, but as part of doing that, this may seem like very ancient history, uh, in working with the team who had built VisiCalc, who were in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, they said, we got, we'll give you an account on um, one of these computers that we work on, uh, which you can connect to through a network. And it's on this thing called the ARPANET. Another name, I guess, which has vanished into history for other people. So this was back in 1979, a little while ago now, uh, that I got a chance to finally look at, not finally, but for the first time to see a uh, computer network and what it would do. And, and it was a, a quick epiphany for me, even though I was just completely, totally into everything we were doing on computers and all the things we were writing and continued to do that for many years. I said, wait a minute. Oh, so these computers are actually here so we can talk to other people on them. They're not just here for us to use them as computers. Well, that's an epiphany many people have had at different times in their lives. Uh, 
But that set the course of my life in many ways uh, by directing me, even though I was spent the 1980s working on software packages and developing um, compilers and languages and tools and games, um, to want to work on doing something on this network. And that's how I came to found the first internet-based business, not because uh, of any particular stroke of genius in what it was, it was a very straightforward business. Um, it was that I was the first person to figure a way around the rules that they'd put in place to say, you can't do a business here. So it was originally built with government grant money and, and a government agency. And they said, you know, this is for research, this is for education, you don't do business on here. And many people were trying to say, hey, this would be great to do business on. This would be great to sell information on. And so I found a, a loophole that let me do that. And that's how I got to start the first such business, uh, doing business over the internet. Yeah, Brad, you and I got to meet um, a few years back at Singularity University when Peter Diamandis was hosting um, an event on technological unemployment. Um, his thinking was is that we were going to get blindsided by this massive waves of unemployment, um, which uh, not nearly as badly as COVID has caused unemployment. But <laughs> Hate to not see something coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, jump 20 years in the future and a bunch of other stuff happened in those 20 years uh, to uh, that place, Singular University, that you mentioned, a, uh, uh, which Peter was one of the founders of, uh, and Ray Kurzweil, who I'm, maybe you've talked about, Ray, on your podcast before. Yeah. Uh, but he does a lot of interesting thinking about the future. And uh, Ray, Peter, and a group of us put together this. I mean, I called it a fake university because it wasn't about the singularity. It really wasn't a university, uh, but it was still a fun place. Uh, but basically to look at rapidly changing technology and what it means, where it's going, what it's doing for the world, how you can adapt to it. Um, many of you will have heard that term, the singularity, which is uh, coined originally by Werner Vinge, a science fiction writer. Uh, and it was about a time when it all, the acceleration all got so fast that you couldn't understand it anymore and things went off the charts and, and there was not even much point in trying to predict what happened. But as a run up to that, it involved the study of technology that just changes really fast. That like Moore's law, the microprocessor being sort of the main driver of Moore's law, that word you hadn't heard before. Right. Um, that that uh, those microprocessors, they were doubling in, in value. Uh, originally in the number of transistors, Gordon Moore actually uh, wrote it just about how many transistors they could stick onto an integrated circuit. But over time, it became uh, really an understanding that the value of these things was doubling every 12 months, 14, 16 months, 24 months at this point. Uh, and that, wow, that was really changing the world a lot. And so that's what Singular University was about. And one of those consequences, of course, was the idea that just as the Industrial Revolution did and many other things did during the course of history, that this was going to upend how we work, upend the value of labor, the role of labor in life, the role of ourselves in the world and in the economy. And so that's what that conference was there to try and discuss. And we all agreed it was a big deal. My favorite moment from that event, though, was uh, someone, I don't remember who got up and said, you know, this is such a big deal. Maybe a group of leading people should get together and write one of those famous letters to the president. The most famous one was by Albert Einstein. Uh, and he and some nuclear physicists wrote a letter uh, to the president back before the Second World War saying, nuclear bombs are going to be a big thing. We got to do something uh, with nuclear bombs, which of course he did. And the world history was changed by it. So people said, you know, we got to write one of these letters to the president and someone at the back of the room. And I also don't remember who it was. And maybe it was even you um, 
said, I, oh, wait, I found a letter. People already wrote a letter, and it says all the things we want to say. Let me read from the letter. Dear President Johnson. Um, so people had, it turns out, research shows that people had written that message uh, dozens of times since the Industrial Revolution. You can find books <laughs> about every decade saying, oh, my God, machines are going to take all our jobs. What the hell are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, every time those books have been published, they've been wrong. Right. Um, every time someone has written and preached that, they've been wrong. Every time they've been wrong, people have said, well, this is the time that it's different. Right. This is the time where um, we really have to worry about it. And by the way, someday, maybe that'll be true. Maybe this will be the time that's different. Maybe this right now is the time that is different. But what we've learned is that we really suck at figuring out whether the machines are going to take all our jobs and whether this is the time that it's really going to happen. And so we've got to figure out how to not suck at that. Right. If we're going to, at least if we're going to pretend we're futurists. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So one, one thing I kind of wonder about that is not the possibility of all the jobs being automated away, but major breakthroughs in automation causing economic upheavals. And eventually it will work out. Eventually people will learn new skills, but there could be rather a rocky transition period, I would think, between yeah. the, the, the two eras. Oh, to be sure. And the transition periods before were pretty rocky, too. And maybe this will be a rockier period. And that sounds a little facile in the sense of if you're one of those people who suddenly has to get a new job, you're not really excited about the fact that the world is going to do OK, right. because you've got a lot of problems. So uh, this is not in any way to say that society and all the components of society shouldn't try and examine and understand the problem and try and find ways to make it easier and ways for it to make life better, of course they will. Uh, I mean, the classic example is that 100 years ago, half the population worked in agriculture. 200 years ago, 98% of the population worked in agriculture. Today, 2% of the population works in agriculture. All of those jobs disappeared. All of those jobs went through that level of upheaval. We don't feel ourselves worse off for it. Well, I run into a few people who who say that was a big mistake or that coming down <laughs> coming down from the trees was a pretty big mistake. Or the dawn of way, agriculture a, was a bad idea. <laughs> there's a pretty convincing argument that coming down from the trees might have been a stupid idea. But uh, nonetheless, we're not sitting here regretting it too much. Reminds me of the, the introduction to, is it life, the universe, and everything, where he says, in the beginning, God created the universe, and many people were disgruntled, and it was widely regarded to be a, have been a bad move. <laughs> yeah, Douglas Adams knew how to say it well. And um, so, but anyway, I, I'm making some jokes about it, to be sure. And But I'll tell you, there are kind of two sorts of people uh, who react to this. And so you tell people, look, we're going to build machines that can do 30% of the stuff that you do in your in your day to day work. And there's some people who say, holy crap, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be out of a job, I get paid to do that stuff. What that what's that going to mean for me? And the other half of the people which includes myself go, wait, when can I get that shut up and take my money, I want the computer to do a third of the crap that I have to do during the day. So I can get on and do the other stuff I want to do. Exactly. Now, there are uh, obviously there are different views of that. And you want to respect and respond to both of those positions. But it's wrong to say it's either one or the other. Right. Yeah, it's, I'm a machine learning engineer, so I build a lot of automation pipelines and computers that are supposed to do these jobs. And, and number one, it would thrill me to have 
a sizable chunk of it automated because a lot of my job is just writing Python scripts to automate parts of what I'm already doing. And then also I find the idea that any of us is going to replace humans anytime soon to be completely hilarious. I mean, if you've ever trained a neural network and had it misclassify cats or mistake a puppy for a muffin or something, it's, uh, you, you realize how far we are away from a lot of these revolutions and these upheavals. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make the older people laugh and you'll again stare at me saying, what is this you're referring to? But uh, um, the joke is that at least now with the neural networks on the internet, we know whether you're a dog or not. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, you do. Okay, you do recognize that. I yeah. did that joke to some people, and it turns out, yeah, uh, everybody had seen that cartoon in the beginning of the, the days of the popularity of the internet in the 1990s. That was the most well-known cartoon there was, and I discovered that a lot of people don't know it anymore. But for so, for those of you uh, listening at home, as a New Yorker cartoon, you can look up uh, about uh, what was great about the internet. So after after leaving Peter's event uh, a few years back. I, I proceeded to write this column on the three laws of exponential capabilities. And um, I'll just read these real quick. But with automation, every exponential decrease in effort creates an equal and opposite exponential increase in capabilities. Um, as today's significant accomplishments become more common, mega accomplishments will take their place. And as we raise the bar for our achievements, we also reset the norm for our expectations. The last one I think I'd agree with. I'm not too sure about the others. Um, the last one also seems to me like the most plausible. That, that does seem right. Yeah. So, uh, I'll so tell these you the, are carved in stone, though, so they're, they're out yeah. it's, it's on the Internet, Tom. Yeah, it's, 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 on, more it's than got to be true. Yeah, it's more <laughs> it's than It's got to be true. And, and, of course, uh, now that we have, uh, you know, we'll have <laughs> nanomachines to take that stone apart. So carving in stone has, has an undo on it now. Right. Um, but, uh, no, the, the thing I'll say that's the counter to that is that, uh, Microsoft Windows is the perfect example. It uh, takes as long to boot uh, today on a computer that runs literally a million times faster than those first computers it ran on did. Um, and the software is bigger. We, we seem to uh, compensate for all those exponential improvements with exponential impediments of one form or another. And so we do, don't quite go as quickly as that suggests. Uh, a friend of mine, Bob Metcalf, uh, tried to make a law um, saying that uh, the value of a network was equal to the uh, the square of the number of people on it because Answer. every connection between two nodes on the network added more value to it. And I think if you've been on social networks, you know that the value of a social network goes down with the number of people on it, uh, not up. So it's actually inversely proportional to it, not proportional to the square of it. Uh, there are a lot of complexities which make these rules, such as you proposed, um, to certainly not be hard and fast. There's all sorts of exceptions and, and counter forces which make the world interesting. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. People often forget that when they try to do an analysis of the future. And I get the same thing when I'm debating monopolies or something like that in economics. People see economies of scale grow as Amazon scales out, but they forget that there are also diseconomies of scale and frictions that crop up all over the yeah. place. And you need project managers for your project managers because it's just so damn hard to get goals accomplished. And that, that hey. puts the, the brakes on... Speaking of which, part. speaking of which, what up with Amazon? Um, I, you know, so there, there's a vote going on in Georgia to unionize one of their plants. And oh. the reason is that um, Amazon has in its giant quest for scale, it seems to have, and I don't, I'm not inside there, so I don't understand their reasoning behind it. But they seem to have, you know, just gone a little bit nuts on trying to fine tune the efficiency of the 
the plants, you know, literally firing people if they take too many bathroom breaks and things like that. This is what the, the unions are complaining about. Right. And I've often wondered why, since they're so rich, I also think that people who are really successful and successful and rich um, shouldn't try and push the edge in terms of getting people mad at you because you can afford not to, right? You can afford to be a little more gracious. So it's interesting that Amazon um, feels, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think they come to this by accident. They feel they really need to do this to, to really fine tune and, and, and effectively robotize the staff that they have picking and packing the orders, which by the way, I mean, I, I've got crates of those Amazon boxes outside. I'm like everybody else, um, liking what they do for me for sure, and just wondering about how they're doing it. Uh, but of course, as you know, Amazon bought Kiva Robotics, which was the first big success in warehouse automation. I think those Amazon workers will probably find in 10 years there's not too many human beings picking and packing uh, stuff for Amazon. At least the you know the, the not the long tail. The long tail maybe will be picked and packed by humans, but the uh, the core products will all be picked and packed by the most popular ones, picked and packed by robots. And uh, in the meantime, though, Amazon seems to want to turn their humans into robots, which is an interesting sort of recent news story related to this question that we've been thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I know that Amazon has always operated on really razor thin margins with the rise of cloud compute and their AWS platform. And it's just strata, stratospheric popularity that's injected a lot of profitability into the enterprise. But I mean, maybe they're just not that profitable still. There was an article that came out said that they're no longer going to let their employees pee in bottles. And then there was, <laughs> there was big objection to that. So then they said, well, okay, you can pee in the bottles. So, um, so I, yeah, but I mean, at some level though, I mean, certainly, you know, Jeff's a smart guy. If you've met him, he's, he's not, he's not oh, a yeah. dimwit. Uh, at some level, he, he, you know, you have to, someone's got to be asking, should we really be having a public debate about whether our staff can pee in bottles? Right. Right. Is this the uh, press that we I want? mean, that's the great thing about zoom is, you know, I could be doing that now and you wouldn't know because all your, your people are listening to us. We're having a little video call with you too, so that we can be a little more <laughs> we would know, but in that's person just with each other. <laughs> that's right. Or of course, you know, occasionally some people who write at uh, certain popular New York magazines may do more while they're on a zoom. Right. Call. But, uh, <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, why, why would you want to even there have a debate about whether you should be letting your employees pee in bottles? That's, that seems like a mistake on Amazon's part. And so when, when smart companies make mistakes, and by the way, all companies make mistakes, there's no question that happens. But when smart companies make mistakes, I'm always curious as to how it came about, uh, why they don't fix it when they discover it's a mistake, or why they don't think it is a mistake. Yeah, I don't really have any <laughs> special insight on that. I'm not sure. I haven't been following that story very carefully. Yeah, that... Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not sure that that was a uh, legitimate story, but somehow somebody picked that up and uh, published it. So well, I've, heard, I've heard it from a few sources. It's true. Um, believe it or not, yes, some news stories that are not 100% true are circulating around the world. Right. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable. So uh, let, let's uh, let's stop beating up on Amazon. I, I, I did want to get your opinion. Oh, on are something. you sponsored by Amazon? I didn't realize. Yeah, okay. this podcast <laughs> brought to you by AWS Web Services. Um, so one of your favorite talk uh, titles is everything you know about autonomous vehicles is wrong. And so I wondered if you might set Thomas and I straight on autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Well, everything you know about them is wrong. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I love to do and love to hear talks that basically, I mean, it's, of course it's never true that everything you know is wrong. Um, but which try to unseat some of the, uh, you know, the very common misconceptions that are going on around it. And we've actually had some improvement over the last little while. Uh, one of the things I'm quite contrary on, on is uh, the role of connectivity. 
In fact, it's become so much of a gospel that you'll see even people calling them CAVs, connected autonomous vehicles. They say it, you know, the connectivity is as important as the automation. And, and that's just not just really wrong. Um, it's the reverse. What's beyond wrong in some sense. And that not I sort of wrong. say, and, well, no, I say connected autonomous vehicles, pick two. Um, all right, you could have connected and autonomous and not a vehicle. That's okay. That's what your computer is. Uh, and you can have autonomous vehicle not connected. That's also okay. But if you want a vehicle that's connected and you make it autonomous, uh, you're taking a big security risk. So in the computer security world, um, we know a few things. And there's a lot of things we don't know, that's for sure. Uh, but one is um, first teach things, uh, the same rule you teach your children. Don't talk to strangers. Um because nobody's ever been able to build an advanced computer system that sits on a network and talks to random strange other parties and has remained secure. It's just not within human competence today, as far as we know. Maybe someday we'll get good at it. You know, a lot of people are promising they'll be that good at it. But the truth is, we've never been able to do it. The military has pulled it off, but the military does it by, you know, isolating their networks from the outside with what they call air gaps, where there's no physical connection between yep. things. Um, so we don't know how to do that. So the idea we would want to make 2,000 kilogram robots, uh, give them you know, full autonomous operation capability to drive around and also make them connected and talk to everybody they encounter on the road seems like an unwise idea to me. Now, that doesn't mean the vehicles aren't connected. Um, they will talk to their headquarters. And if they're smart, they'll be a little bit scared of their headquarters, but they won't talk to beyond their headquarters. And if they need to find out something another car knows, which occasionally they will, They'll learn that because their headquarters talk to the headquarters of another car, or maybe their cars are both brand, both the same brand, and so they were able to exchange information that way. But uh, this dream that cars are all going to have a radio network on the road, but it's very, very common, and that's one of the things that a lot of people talk about that, that does turn out to be wrong. Another one is um, uh, something that I'm sure you've heard of if you've even done any reading about self-driving cars. Uh, you've probably heard of levels, right? So these yep. levels... We're defined first by the uh, American Drive, uh, Safety Agency, NHTSA, and then later taken over by the Society of Automotive Engineers and expanded a little bit. And what they said was, we'll define four and then five levels or more, if you consider zero a level, uh, of a taxonomy for self-driving cars. And everybody at the time was sort of saying, yeah, we don't really know how to talk about these things, so it would be good to have a taxonomy. So, oh, look, there's a taxonomy. That's great. But they defined the taxonomy in terms of numbers, and they termed it, did it in terms of basically what's the role of the human being in the self-driving car. And at each level, there was less and less role for the human being until there was no role for the human at all at the top. And that's kind of like taking the, you know, the Motorwagen that Carl Benz created and uh, looking for a taxonomy of those and saying, let's define the taxonomy of these motor cars by what the role of the horse is in them. And there's some that have just a lot of horse and a little bit of horse, and finally there's no horse. Right? And in fact, that's how they thought of it. They called it a horseless carriage. Right? That was that was that was all they they looked at. All they could see was where's the horse. Um, and so the the same thing is wrong about these levels. But the thing that's even more wrong was making them numbered and ordered. And in fact, I convinced them a few years later to amend the document and say this is not meant to be an ordering. We call them one, two, three, four, five, but we you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain here because it's, it's, it, it's not ordered uh, I, they should have just you know given them names instead of letters or numbers that would have made it a lot clearer uh, because the very first vehicles that were ever deployed were these little uh, shuttles for campuses 
Uh, and these didn't use it. They didn't have a human being in them at all. They, they were full self-driving, what they would have called level four in that original taxonomy. And four came first. Um, and, you know, well, there was one, but one, so one and two weren't even self-driving cars. And so they shouldn't have even been there. And so, and three <laughs> turned out to be a bad idea, which most people agree don't do. So there was really only ever one. Uh, and yet everywhere you go, people say, first thing you'll need to know about this is there are levels. <laughs> and, and here's the things that people are working on. And uh, it, well, you know, so it's, it, is, it is amusing, but it actually had a dark side. And the dark side was that because they said the Tesla is level two and a Waymo is level four, that made it very easy to conclude, in fact, difficult not to conclude that somehow a Tesla was just a, a something on the way to the Waymo, that it was a, a slightly lower version of the Waymo or full self-driving car was what your Tesla autopilot was. I, By the way, I have a Tesla. I love it. It's a great product, but it is not a slightly reduced version of a self-driving car. But there are some people who have made that mistake and in spite of being warned by Tesla as well. I mean, Tesla warns them, lots of people warn them. No, this thing cannot drive itself. Don't act like it does. Uh, but they've acted like it does and then their heads have been cut off. And then that's bad. Never kill a customer. One of the primary rules of business right. um, <laughs> has been violated here. Or uh, let them piss it, in bottles. That's also not good. You can let, no, that's your employees who can piss in the bottles. Your, your customers can pee anywhere they want. I guess, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Okay, so, so, uh, so there, there's two misconceptions, and, and I think I've done two-hour talk on that subject, so I don't think we're going to do all that here, uh, <laughs> but we can we can talk about more of them. One of the ones is about employment, uh, because I've, there's a chart that you'll see go around, and it says what's the most common job in every state, and in about half the states it's truck driver, and so everyone's wondering, oh well, you know, everybody is thinking about automating truck driving, so what's that going to mean for employment? So. I mean, you can argue about whether truck driver is the number one job in these places. It's, um, I mean, it is, a, it is a, certainly a common job. It's one of the few jobs that pays semi-decently, doesn't require an education. Um, you know, you can train, you can do truck driver training in a couple of months. It's not, um, not like killer hard. I'm not saying it's nothing, but it's not killer hard. And um, so that's, uh, it's, it's very grueling work though, by the way. And because of that, the turnover in long haul trucking every year, well, not every year, but there are a number of years where the turnover is like 130%, which means more people leave, quit jobs than there are jobs uh, and more people get hired, but actually yeah. not more people get hired because there's actually a big shortage of people willing to do this job because, you know, it's kind of bounces you up and down and the hours are long and you sleep in the back of a truck or in a motel and you're away from your family for 10 days when you go across the country and you come back. And it's not something everybody signs up for. And certainly when it comes to um, driving Ubers and stuff, I've asked large crowds of people. So when you were young and growing up, did you dream about someday becoming a cab driver? Uh, and no, the hands don't go up. It's not a career. Um, truck driver is a bit of a career for some people, but Driving Uber is not a career for people. It's something that people said, oh, look, I can quickly make some money on my terms. Uh, they don't pay you very much, but I can go out and do it. And um, so there's, I don't think there's a big employment uh, thing to happen. As far as the truck drivers are concerned, for the first many years, it won't be replacing anybody who wants a career in truck driving because I say there's a big shortage. Down the road, it might start making people think that a career in truck driving is not long-term. But of all the jobs where robots are going to replace people in the work, that's actually not that high in the list in spite of uh, the common, you know, this is again, what's the list of common misconceptions here? Um, 
that, you know, that's the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to put all the drivers out of work and therefore it's bad. Oh, by the way, truck drivers kill about 2,000 people every year, a large number of them truck drivers. And so uh, would we really protect a job that's killing thousands of people a year if that were, I mean, just to save jobs? I don't think we would do that. <laughs> so what do you think is the correct way to conceptualize the development of autonomous vehicles? I mean, you, you don't like the existing taxonomy. How do you uh, parse the stages of evolution for this technology? Well, so in the same document where they made up the silly levels, they did also point out another important way of distinguishing and they gave it a you know the very user-friendly name of odd operational design domain that's what you know what standards bodies and government agencies come up with wonderful names um which is basically a long way to say where it can drive um and so that turns out to be important is uh, you know where can it actually operate and certainly the early projects that are working and still today uh can only operate in limited areas uh, and it's not so much an area, it's not like a geographic area, it's a type of road and it can handle. We have built it and we test it and we finally believe it is safe on the roads of a suburban Arizona town, which is where the first successful project is outside of Phoenix. So that's actually what's more important is where it can go, which means that this doesn't arrive all at once. That's the famous William Gibson quote about the future being unevenly distributed. This will definitely be that way. Uh, now, not everyone believes that. Tesla and a few others believe that they will solve the much bigger problem first, and they'll make it so we can drive on every road, or almost every road, and then we'll release the car, and then bam, there it is, it's driving everywhere. Other people say they're going to test it, you know, make sure it works with the local rules and the local roads, and they're happy with the local government, and buy taxi fleets and everything, and we'll do that one city at a time. So how, how long before we see the first car that travels across the United States with no human assistance? Oh, well, there, people have done that a number of times. Really? That's not that, that's not that hard. That's kind of like you can do that in your basement now. Um, no, an one, guy, one guy I know did do that. Hmm? An autonomous car? Yeah, I mean, there was a person in it, but the person didn't touch the wheel. Interesting. When was that? Well, I mean, oh, years ago. I mean, this, you're talking about on the freeways. Drive across the country. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, on the freeways. Freeways are... You know, they're fast, but everything else about them is easy. There's no cross traffic. There's no, you know, op the opposing road is divided for you. There's no pedestrians. There's no bicycles. Um, there's none of that stuff. Everyone's going the same direction. They're usually well paved and well marked. They're the, uh, they're the sort of the low-hanging cream of that problem. Um, yeah, well, that um, that's not the same as um, they probably had to stop and put gas in the car. Well, yes. Sorry. I'm, okay, yes. So, so, you, you, want, you want one that doesn't need any... Uh, that's a bit more of a challenge. I don't think anyone's going to do that. Okay, but that's going to happen sometime along the, the way. And the humans are going to want to pee, although they could pee in a bottle. That's true. Yeah, yeah we, we've established that that's you know, permissible. <laughs> if they're dudes. Well, I mean, women can do it too, but they have to bring, you know, a better bottle. Yeah, well, <laughs> it could be an electric vehicle that gets recharged along the way and it stops. Uh, well, I haven't seen any highways that will recharge a car, and nor am I likely to see them. So uh, certainly no one's going to have done that. Oh, yeah, not the induction stuff yet. But um, uh, you don't need to say yet. Um, but I mean, there are people experimenting with that. But the uh, there are people trying to build solar freaking roadways, too. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. So so I um, I always look in terms of uh, major accomplishments along the way. I mean, when when uh, the early days of flight, they were trying to see who could fly from, 
you know, from St. Louis to Kansas City or from right. um, and the first person that could fly across the Atlantic. Uh, so in well, the, he was actually just the first racist to fly across the Atlantic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> OK, but the uh but in later, the, the less recognized, the first non-racist to fly across the Atlantic. <laughs> but in terms of autonomous uh, vehicles, we're going to see a number of firsts. And I mean, one of them would be a challenge to go from uh, Boston to L.A. or something like that uh, without any human intervention. And they'll craft up some rules around that. Um, well, no, as I say, that's uh, that's pretty easy. A lot of people have done that. I think almost... Uh, I think most of the major teams could pull that off now. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to, I mean, other than this part about not having to stop for fuel, uh, they, they still would have to stop for fuel. Yeah. Uh, no, now, none of them would do it today. I shouldn't, I, mean, I don't think any of them would do it today without having a human being in case uh, inside yeah. the vehicle. So the real milestones have actually come, uh, recent milestones. In the beginning, all milestones involved doing something and have, while you had a human being in there in case. Uh, and then we've started switching to some people demonstrating milestones, not too many, demonstrating milestones without a human being in the vehicle at all. Uh, and we're some distance from somebody doing that across the country like that. And the biggest thing that would actually block someone from doing that cross country right now is it probably isn't legal and might not be for a while. Interesting. Well, so how about a, a more flexible autonomous system that doesn't need the freeway then? That they, they can do it on back roads or city streets? Well, once again, though, not every state would be comfortable with an empty, unmanned robot running any of its roads. Well, let, let's um, assume that's not a problem. In terms of just the technology, when do you think the technology will be there? No, no. So the, the freeway is the easiest. The sure. freeway is the easiest. Sure. And so a number of people have done drives across the country without interventions. Um, the uh, freeway is... Well, for trucking, it's actually 90% of the problem, 99% of the problem. So there are several companies now who are on the verge, they claim, of being ready to do real trucking service. Uh, now, that's because you can make a real trucking service just running between uh, Tulsa and Phoenix or something. Uh, so you only have to really make sure you're absolutely good on the interstate between those two towns. And you fire off a truck and it go drives all the way to the other exit and then it pulls off at the exit and goes to a little depot and then a human being takes over the truck to bring it to the local uh, place that it's going to or bring it to the highway. And so there are companies who think they can have a service like that very soon uh, because again, freeways are easy. There's a counter to that, which is that any accident in a big 18-wheel transport truck is a very serious deal compared to an accident in a little Prius or something. So you have to be extra, extra sure that you've pulled it off because uh, you don't want to have some kind of jackknife or anything else going on. Um, but nonetheless, people are thinking that's kind of the easiest problem and that's what they want to do. And in fact, uh, Waymo, when it was beginning, they first looked at solving the highway problem and debated, should they make a car that you could buy, which would drive itself on the highway for you? So you would take it from your garage to the highway on-ramp, you'd push a button, and then bing, 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 fall asleep if you wanted, and then you'd get alerted when it was coming to the off-ramp uh, for, and this is the thing they sometimes call level three, uh, that you were getting to where you were leaving the highway. And that would be nice, because you actually wouldn't fall asleep, that's kind of risky, but you would do email or read a book or watch a video or something of that sort, something that you could be called upon, not instantaneously, but within 10 seconds to 
take the car out and off ramp or something like that. So anyway, they thought about making that and many other people have thought about making that. And uh, Honda sells a car now in Japan, which does that in Japan. Um, not that, it doesn't do that. It does, it'll do a traffic jam for you. So if you're coming into a traffic jam in the Honda legend that you've bought in Japan, you can push the button and it will then drive the traffic jam until the traffic clears up. And then it'll tell you, you've got to take over now. The traffic is cleared up. And if you don't take over right now, it'll just stop because it was already in slow traffic. So it's not really a, a big deal. Probably annoys the crap out of the guy behind you. But other than that, it, it takes you there. And um, so that's actually pretty doable. As I say, Honda did it. Um, Tesla could do it if they wanted to. A lot of companies could do that. Uh, but the real interesting stuff happens when you can run around cities and in particular, when you can run around cities with nobody in the car so that you can be an Uber, but at a much lower price and with much more flexibility. As soon as you have the ability to do that, what we often call a robo-taxi, um, that's the world-changing thing. That's the thing that changes how we get around. It changes the nature of the auto industry. It changes the nature of our cities where we live. It changes really large aspects of our lives because cars are like huge we 25 percent of our energy goes to driving cars 25 percent of our greenhouse gases we spend 50 billion hours turning steering wheels every year we only work 240 billion hours and we spend 50 billion hours turning steering wheels these are huge These are the biggest numbers in the world pretty much um five trillion dollars spent on ground transportation around the world every year well, if you can make that, if you can make that thing that is basically that robotic taxi that can replace the car for you, so people don't buy cars anymore, they buy rides, which is what they do from Uber. It's not like a, that's not a grand concept, but being able to do it for the same price as owning a car, because you don't have to pay someone to drive it, that is big and changes a lot of stuff. How, how long? How long before we see that? Well, I say if you live in Chandler, Arizona, you can ride it tonight. Um, and supposing we don't live in Chandler, Arizona, <laughs> you could move there. Uh, <laughs> so if you live in a small <laughs> suburb of, uh, Shenzhen, you can also do that. Um, there's a company called auto X in uh, China, which is also doing what Waymo was doing. Um, and there's a few other small little spaces around the world where you can do that today. And, uh, in this decade, we will see a few more companies succeed at pulling it off, and we will see Waymo and those companies uh, working as fast as they can to expand their territory and maybe someday get into your territory. Um, they'll go after the obviously the most lucrative territories, the easiest territories to drive, um, and uh, they'll want to be first. So I think there's going to be no shortage. The companies trying to pull this off, companies like Google and Apple, General Motors, um, they ain't poor companies, right? They they right. got the money to pull this off. Yeah. So and sorry, I should, I should say Tesla, which is now one of the world's most valuable companies too. Well, we had we had the promise of. I mean, Amazon has been working on this idea of using drones to deliver packages to our houses. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and last I heard, they they had fired the second team of people designing these drones. And um, so we're, we're still a long ways from having that happen. Um, so is the, the dangling carrot of autonomous transportation, is it just that? Are we going to get there uh, in the next five years, 10 years? Well, as I say, it depends on where you live. And there's going to be some places in the world where you're not going to get it for decades. 
and there's other places where you're going to get it within five years. And I think um, if you're in one of those prime territories, I expect it to start show. I expect it to show up in five years in those prime territories, depending on where Waymo and these other companies want to spend the money. Now, uh, I do compete with Amazon's uh, drones because one of the companies I'm involved in called Starship, we make, well, you wouldn't call them drones, but we make little delivery robots that run on the sidewalk instead of flying in the air. And they're not as fast as the drones, but they have a much easier time landing. Uh, and they bring your restaurant food and your groceries so on to you. And they don't need to have a human being inside. Well, they, you couldn't even fit somebody inside unless they were a little person or something. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that is a real thing. Starship has done 1 million deliveries now, if you live in one of the service areas where it's working. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so there's a million people. Well, not quite a million people because a lot of people love it and do it all the time. But lots of people who have uh, had a robot come to their door and deliver them something. Um, so this is also, again, something real, but not e uh, evenly distributed. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this question of digital rights. It's a, it's a thing you think a lot about and that you've written a lot about. So what's on your list of digital rights? Well, uh, some good news today. Uh, yesterday, the Supreme Court uh, gave a nice ruling in a case that I was uh, one of the uh, amici or uh, who files a brief uh, in favor of a case uh, just over um, a lawsuit that Oracle, which bought Sun and thus Java, uh, had against Google trying to forbid Google from re-implementing Java. That's pretty obscure nerd digital rights. Uh, but it was good to see the Supreme Court come down on our side, as they occasionally will do, um, uh, so that it will allow people to create alternate implementations of computer languages, programming environments, uh, which basically this, uh, this uh, set of computer scientists who signed this document with me, uh, we recruited some of the inventors of almost all the major languages, not Java, because <laughs> that was in the lawsuit, right. but you know, C and spreadsheets and Perl and Python, all these other languages, PHP, all these languages that you uh, have seen used, uh, we're all saying, hey, you, no, people need to be able to copy languages or else computer science wouldn't have existed. Uh, that's current news. Um, but obviously there's a lot of controversy as well right now over um, the role that uh, computer networking, uh, social networking, and online community have played in upending the world of politics, being a platform for the weaponization of propaganda, uh, and thus resulting in all sorts of calls to regulate them, censor them, push people off of them, you know, um, shut down ones like Parlay, or as I guess they call it, Parler, that I guess it's right. appropriate that they don't know how to say, say a word. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, this is uh, this is something actually it's one of the first conundrums that I haven't thought there was that easy an answer to now uh, obviously everyone has their own ideology and your ideology is 100% correct and right. so when you look at any problem you look at it through the lens of your ideology and and you can see an answer to a problem that you know the way that your tribe will think is the right answer for that problem but this one has been difficult because it's pretty clear that when we were dreaming all this up and you know, and I say we in the sense of I was there. I you know I I, I I'm going to play a small role, but a lot of people played very big roles. Um, I, we we didn't think enough about this one. I mean, I'm talking about back in the '80s and, and '90s and so on. Uh, generally, we found we felt that just having more ability to communicate, more ability to publish, a more ability to reach with people, and for people to find other people who were like them in other parts of the world, that this was going to be an unalloyed good. And it has turned out to not be an unalloyed good for a bunch of different reasons we've seen. Social networking 
uh, turned into an addictive tool, which uh, you know consumes people's lives. We've seen filter bubbles show up that have actually stopped all the information from getting people the way we thought. You know, we thought, well, this is great. Every, you know, no, no information will be suppressed. Everyone will be able to learn everything. But of course, it turned out that a lot of propaganda was there. And then once people saw that, then they reacted the other way and said, oh, we got to stop letting these networks be free and open. We got to require all these people to, you know, hunt for fake news and shut it down and hunt for propaganda and shut it down. And as soon as that happened, then I saw everybody complaining, saying, I got kicked out of Facebook for saying this perfectly ordinary thing. I don't know how many of my friends have posted about how they went to Facebook jail over something like that. So we're not going to be happy. Or we're, we're, we're not seeing an easy way out of it. And I'm not saying we won't find one, but it's not as readily apparent no matter what your ideology, I think. Uh, maybe there are a few ideologies that are seeing an obvious answer, but that answer is almost certainly wrong. So what do you think the role of culture versus a legal apparatus is in, in resolving questions of this sort? That's what we're trying to work. I've been actually trying to create um, an entirely new moral theory. Oh, interesting. Uh, to, uh, to help answer these questions. And this moral theory says that it is wrong to exploit bugs in the human psyche. Um, now, we already have laws that say you can't exploit bugs in people's computer programs and break into them. Um, and we have laws that say you can't exploit certain bugs in the human psyche. One of them is gambling addiction, right? So we, we know that humans have this, you know, this bug in how we deal with gambling. And some of us, not everyone, but some number of people will destroy themselves if you give them gambling. Right. So we regulate or ban gambling in many places to, because of this bug, and we, we said it's not. And even in Las Vegas, the casinos are all required to look for gambling addicts and stop them from gambling when they see them. Uh, and so that is, uh, and you know, we also have made it illegal, uh, sometimes to very negative consequence, because we're not very good at how we do this. But we have, we do believe that it's wrong to sort of, you know, give someone an addictive drug, um, especially if you don't tell them it's going to be addictive and they don't, they don't understand what's happening to them. And this also exploits a, a bug in, well, you could say not in the psyche, but even in the biology of our brains. And so we already sort of understand that exploiting bugs is uh, in, in people uh, has some wrong to it. But if you'll notice all this stuff that we're not liking about Facebook and all this stuff we're not liking about propaganda, it's kind of all based as well on exploiting, actually reasonably well documented by psychiatrists right, or by uh, psychologists, uh, flaws in the human uh, makeup. And in, you know, game theorists study this a lot and they, they, they find very clear cases where, yeah, people do the irrational thing here. Now, the reason this theory won't be too popular with some people is it sort of says that marketing is wrong, um, or at least some marketing is wrong. And uh, obviously, there are very powerful forces who would not like the idea that marketing is wrong, that A-B testing, oh, look, if we make the button blue, twice as many people click on it than if we make it red. But the truth is, well, that wasn't in anyone's interest um, to, to make it blue versus red and to test and find that out. So... It might be nice if we, we develop moral standards that said in how we interact with human beings and how we program computers to interact with human beings, we try and be above board and not try and exploit bugs. And by which I mean things that you're unaware of and which make you do something which after the fact, if you looked at it said, no, I didn't want to do that. Um, that that's irrational. I think that's very interesting and very compelling, but I, I don't know how you implement that as an actual clear cut standard, because number one, quite a lot of cognition happens 
in an unconscious arena, a thing that we don't have direct introspective access to. Mm-hmm. And number two, that there's just lots of behaviors that kind of not necessarily exploit, but traffic on uh, regularities in human psychology. So I mean, I'm thinking of like makeup, for example, or high heels or fake breasts or uh, lots of other things, I mean, or just getting really in shape. It's uh, these are, these are, signals of underlying genetic fitness, which we have learned to fake in various ways. And, and I think you could make a case that that is exploiting flaws in human psychology in a way that would be problematic from the perspective of your moral theory. You but might it, be. And, and, and that's why you'd want to define some fairly scientific standards of what is a flaw and what isn't a flaw with you know, a certain level of research study required to define one. I mean, gambling addiction is not like just some vague concept that, I agree. Uh, that's that, that somebody mentioned. It's, it's a very well understood uh, been studied, lots of uh, lots of research on it. So I would put a bar that there be, uh, you know, this kind of level of research, that there be this kind of understanding as well that it's wrong. So I mean, if, if all the women who bought makeup said after the fact, I wish I hadn't bought this makeup, um, I was tricked into buying it by whatever, the marketing, the society, then maybe you could have a case. But a lot of the women say, no, I feel better when I look better, and so uh, I buy this because I want to buy it. Well, so that's interesting. That's actually not what I meant. I, I see what you're saying, but I, I meant from the male's perspective. I mean, I've you've read about cases, presumably. Ah, where, you were seduced by a woman with sexy red lips. I can see that. Well, yeah, so that has <laughs> happened, but uh, what I was thinking of is, is that uh, that case in China. It's happened to all of us, by it's happened all, We've all gotten into that trouble. Um, I'm glad my fiancé doesn't listen to this podcast. Um <laughs> But, but you heard that case in China where the, the man married a woman who had had plastic surgery and then had some children that didn't look anything like her or him. And they, they were much less attractive and he felt cheated or he felt uh, taken advantage yeah. of in some way. And I think he, he divorced her and I didn't follow it after that. But uh, I mean, just trying to make yourself more attractive again at, at a certain level, I think you can make the case that you're exploiting a flaw in human psychology, the, the human preference for bilateral symmetry and the fact that we implicitly believe that means a person is genetically fit. Uh, if, if you're doing something to, to hide your. Yeah, but I, so I'm, I'm talking about where it's done very consciously and deliberately, you know, in the sense of a company like Facebook or, or any other marketing company sits there and does an A B test to say, you know, which was better, this or that, or relies on it. You know, it's going to have to be a deliberate action. And, you know, you could argue this woman, of course, she got her plastic surgery so that she would be more attractive to men and so on. And maybe he could argue this was a fraud, but I'm not talking about this at all. And I think, but maybe you'll, I'll prove to be wrong on this, but I think we could actually write it. And I don't know if we could draw a bright line, but I know we, I think we could draw a line that keeps well out of that and sticks to, uh, in particular, right away, you could just say commercial exploitation uh, as uh, just as, you know, all the rules about fraud. For example, I don't think that in, well, I don't know about in China, but I don't think that you'd be able to put, make a, a fraud claim against this woman in most right. of the Western legal jurisdictions. Um, usually there's got to be a financial gain. Now, if, if um, I suppose if the woman did that and, and married the guy for his money and then, you know, uh, took all his money or something like that, then maybe you could, I don't, I actually, I don't know. I think fraud laws probably would not accept that either. Even marrying lots of people have married someone for their money before, (laughs) and it's never been considered and lied in order to get uh, the marriage. And I don't think I've ever heard of that being considered fraud. So I think that um, even just a commercial line would clear up some of your concerns or most of your concerns. And in fact, there'd be other lines. However, it's, as I say, a very nascent and novel approach to moral philosophy in order to solve this problem that we do have uh, 
which is that we are very manipulable and uh, people are now learning how to multiply their ability to manipulate us by using computers. And that's in the end what computers always do, right? In fact, I've often said that all of the digital moral issues come down to the idea of the automation of good and evil, that we love that computers can automate good things, automate publishing, you know, automate uh, podcasts, uh, you know, make all these things possible and happen. Uh, and we don't like the fact that they can automate evil things like spam and computer intrusion and DDoS and uh, all these other things that, that are bad. And maybe we are now adding manipulation and propaganda to that list. I mean, propaganda is not a new invention, of course. Right. Um, and it's never been possible, though, to make propaganda that was sort of individually targeted and saying, okay, here's, here's Thomas, and we know he likes this and that, and uh, we're going to make some propaganda up just for him and throw it to some neural networks so it's really spearfished at him. This is a new problem, which um, when you combine with it the ability to then change how people will vote as well as what people will buy, we're now seeing that that could be something very scary. There could be something serious there. It seems like the crux is that you sort of want to broaden the definition of fraud. I know you didn't put it in those terms, but you're, you're broadening the definition of fraud to encompass situations where you're chiseling away at a person's agency because you understand something about the structure of their mind that they don't understand. And mm -hmm. there's, there's kind of no way for them really to introspect on directly. Right. Well, I mean, there is almost always in, in propaganda uh, some lying going on, although actually there's pretty clever propaganda that never actually technically Yeah, there, lies. there really is, yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, there have been many attempts around the world, not in the United States, but uh, in Canada, which is where I'm from, uh, we actually had a law called the false news law. It was long before the word fake news had come into vocabulary. This goes back to the 80s. And it was used to prosecute a guy who was publishing these pamphlets uh, um, saying the Holocaust was a hoax. And uh, that is a lie. Uh, and uh, uh, the law was pretty, uh, pretty strict, actually, because it required that he published a lie. It required that he knew he was lying, which is hard to prove in court, but sometimes you can prove that. Uh, but in the end, that law was struck down even in Canada, which does not have as strong a First Amendment, as you might call it. It's not, it's not an amendment in Canada. It's a different system. It's part of the Constitution. Um, but in the United States, the First Amendment has been pretty strong against even making it illegal to lie, unless you're trying to get people out of their money. It is illegal to lie to, uh, to trick people into giving you their money. In the United States, the First Amendment doesn't play into that. Uh, and now we're starting to wonder about, you know, we're lying to people so that we can get them to vote a certain way. And we're wondering whether will we regulate that or what will we do? Uh, but by and large, you know, the reason that people who and I am a very strong free speech absolutist, and there are not everyone agrees with that, but there are many people who agree with that. But what's not well understood about the def strong defense of free speech is that it's not because speech is harmless. Right. Okay. Um, lots of bad things can happen because of speech. I like to say that the book, The Communist Manifesto, because it contains within it the idea that in order to bring about the ideal society, you need a dictatorship of the proletariat, which will temporarily put society in the right order and then eventually wither away. That idea in the Communist Manifesto has been used as the basis and justification for the most repressive and evil regimes in the history of the world that have killed more people than Hitler did in the Holocaust. By, um, far, by far. Yeah. 
So, wow, that's a pretty nasty book, but I wouldn't ban it. And the reason I wouldn't ban it or anything else uh, for just being wrong or, or being a harmful idea is that uh, censorship, of course, is also super harmful. In fact, of course, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, all heavily relied on keeping the public unaware of the bad things they were doing as an essential part of being able to do what they did. And we have yet to find, in any example, really in human history, a way to only censor the bad speech. Right. Um, and so granting the power of banning speech to someone is da more dangerous than the ideas that they want to ban. And so we don't want to grant that power. Uh, and you'll constantly get into arguments with people, you know, the most famous case uh, the ACLU fought was over a group of Nazi scum who wanted to march in Illinois, Skokie, Illinois. And it caused a lot of debate inside the ACLU because uh, the ACLU has a pretty large Jewish contingent within its staff. And, you know, everyone was saying, wait, Jews are defending Nazis? And of course they were not. They were defending marching. Uh, but it was very hard to get people to understand the difference between defending marching and defending Nazis when it's Nazis that are marching. Right. Um, and that mistake has continued to happen and will continue to happen for some time. And uh, one of today's political hot button issues has been given the name cancel cultural. That's already a, a polarized name. But it's the interesting and scary rise of the use of mob um, not not really organized, but quasi-organized mob activity in order to exact punishments on people. Um, uh, things that we would never let the justice system do and abandoning all the rules of the justice system. But many people think it's okay. And they think it's okay, A, because it's the mob doing it, not the government. It's only bad if the government censors. Uh, but they're also mainly because I think, but also these people are bad people and therefore what's the problem with them losing their jobs or, or, you know, or, or having to lose their sponsors or whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, I think we're going to have an interesting debate over that uh, as time goes on. It's unfortunately become a left-right debate. And then as soon as it becomes a left-right debate, we now get people divided into tribes. And their tribes are more interested in being sure the other tribe is wrong than they are in their own tribe being consistent in what it says. Um, and I don't know how to solve that one either. Yeah, tribes have that interesting property. Well, humans are very tribal, and it's, it's in fact, um, uh, a friend of mine, Robin Hansen, has a book uh, called The Elephant in the Brain. Fantastic book. And he documents uh, a number of these bugs in the human psyche in that book. It's one of the reasons I started thinking about that, was talking to Robin about it. And, um, and one of the bugs is the tribalism. It's a very strong one. Uh, and that one has a very well understood or understandable organization, because we came from that. And being in your tribe and being with your tribe was the most important thing in your life when uh, humans live that way. So we haven't gotten rid of that. So, so let me ask you another question totally out of left field. Uh, oh, about a half dozen years ago, I gave a talk for the Turkish Post. Um, that's the postal system in Turkey. And they brought... I, I, I figured that. I figured it wasn't for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they brought... Um, representatives of all the postal services all around the world together for a best practices conference. And they wanted me to talk about the future of the postal industry. 
And, yeah. and uh, I, I, <laughs> I started off with this central question of how long will it be before we can um, mail a package in Istanbul and it makes it to, let's say, San Francisco without ever touching any human hands? Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know how often it touches human hands today. Uh, I mean, other than the the people who bring it to my door, uh, I think robots do a lot of it at the, in the middle. Yeah, they do a lot, but it's there's that always, last mile. That, it, there's always these gaps uh, from one country to the next, or loading it onto a ship, or. Yeah. Uh, well, that's um, that's similar to the, um, uh, in many ways, to this Amazon question we were speaking about earlier on. Uh, you know, well, how long before Amazon takes all these human beings out of the the equation? Right. Right. Uh, now, now the thing I the, uh, this one the post office has become a, a polarized tribal issue as well. Um, because Donald Trump went after it, and right. when he went after it, that means anyone who was against Trump uh, would have to then be for it, and or or if you criticized it, then you were somehow with Trump, and of course that's silly. Um, but the post office is a giant anachronism. In fact, I would love to make a rule that says you it is. I mean, illegal is a strong word for this, but um, you should not be allowed to put in the mail anything that was generated by a computer, anything that's just a printout. <laughs> um, and unless the person receiving it has asked you to do that, right? So if they said, no, I want this on paper, uh, then you can send it to that person on paper. Or if they've, um, not made any statement about it, maybe you can send it on paper, but God, my mailbox of all, I mean, I would say 99% of the mail I get in a year is something that was generated by a computer and printed. Uh, and mailed to me. And so a lot of it's junk mail catalogs and, and, and that sort of thing. But even the bills and all these other things, all just generated by computer. And here they are being printed on paper to be destroy millions of trees so they can come into my mailbox. And the reason people don't like my pointing this out is, of course, if you did that, what would the post office do? It would only deliver parcels then and, a, and some amount of mail for the people who want the paper mail. And um, it's become pretty important for people to have a low-cost parcel service. Uh, some people get their pills that way. I mean, I get drugs in the mail too. Uh, prescribed, prescribed. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, but of course, the fact that the uh, post people come to your every house on the street every day is very good economy of scale in terms of getting people their parcels as well. And if we got rid of all that printed, these computer printouts that we were being mailed. Um, we wouldn't uh, really have that same kind of post office. It would just be a lot like UPS and FedEx and all these other companies and, and have the same economies that they do. And so that turned it into a political issue. But God, from a, but the, the, tearing down all those forests so we can mail computer printouts across the country, it just seems so stupid. And that would have been the question I would have given the Turks to, yeah. um, to worry about. Not to, uh, now, the parcels, um, you know, parcels are big and they've got barcodes on them. And so the robots are getting better and better at routing those parcels around. It's very true. Yeah. So in the, the last minutes here, I've, I've begun to ask all our guests, what makes them hopeful about the future? Well, I mean, if you've read Steven Pinker, um, you know that in spite of all the bad crap we talk about, because um, a lot of very positive trends that continue to be positive and uh, poverty is going down and communications going up and all, all sorts of good things are going up even crimes going down in spite of the the common perception so um, it's better to ask people why are you not hopeful about the future uh, because i think there's more reasons to be hopeful well, there's plenty of reasons to be not hopeful plenty of scary things and plenty of existential risks 
But by and large, uh, we're actually, well, constantly running into new and exciting problems. We're actually on a pretty positive trend. Well, it seems as hopeful a note as any to end on. Thanks very much for joining us today, Brad. All right. Well, thanks very yeah, much. Thanks, and, uh, Brad. See you again soon. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.